Uh, we are really, what we're really celebrating is that God has fulfilled his promises. I'm going to read you this overwhelming list of promises from the Old Testament that foretold of the coming of Messiah. When Messiah comes would be like the beginning statement. When he comes, he will come through the seed of a woman. He will come from the line of Shem. He will come through the line of Abram. He will come through the line of Judah. He will come through the line of Jesse. He will come through the line of David. He will come from the town of Bethlehem. He will come as a child and a son. He'll be born of a virgin. He will be called Emmanuel. He'll be called the Lord of our righteousness. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He will come in humility. He will serve as a prophet. He will bring good news to the afflicted. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will wash away the guilt of sinners. He will serve as a channel of divine blessing to the world. He will be rejected by man, pierced by the Jews, and crushed by God the Father. He will die a substitutionary sacrifice for guilty sinners to provide forgiveness and salvation. He'll be resurrected from the dead. He will come again in judgment upon the nations. He will bring destruction to the enemies of Israel. He will reign in perfect peace, justice, and righteousness, a king over the entire earth. He will rebuild the temple of the Lord and rule on his throne as priest. He will unify and restore the nation of Israel. He will feed and protect Israel as her divine shepherd. He will bring salvation to Israel and reign over her as king. He will be appointed as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations of the earth. He will be given glory and everlasting dominion over all the nations of the earth and his kingdom will be established forever. That's an incredible number of promises. So many promises that there is no coincidence. I mean, how in the world can you take the number of books that that just came from and the number of years as if somebody made that up? God has fulfilled his promise. Messiah has come. And this is what I would like just to plant in our hearts. With so many promises fulfilled in the first coming, we can rest assured Jesus will return. In the New Testament, 300 references to the return of Jesus appear in the 216 chapters of the New Testament. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books mention the return of Jesus. So again, we're stacking up verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book, as the Old Testament resulted in the promise of God being fulfilled. So the New Testament is filled with promises and God will fulfill his word. Jesus will return. Jesus spoke of his return. In Acts 1, it's not for you to know. This is where we get stuck. We get stuck in the schedule. It's not for us to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But until the Father fulfills the promise and Jesus returns, you will receive dunamis, power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses. Witnesses of what? The King. 
The king has arrived. Messiah has arrived. The kingdom is coming. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, this is Jesus said this to the original 120 disciples. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, everybody look up. Everybody like have a quizzical look. Everybody shake your head like, what did we just, what has just happened? So they're gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men, angels, stood by them in white robes and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? How do angels always say the obvious? What's up with that? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus, the Messiah, at the end of his first coming, ascended back to the Father with the promise of his return. We're now between the promises. The first has been fulfilled. The second is being fulfilled. It's unfolding according to the Father's timetable. So Christ came down. King came down. Christ, Messiah, King are all synonymous terms. There's no, they don't mean it, it's just different languages. Messiah, Hebrew. Christ, Greek. Christ, Messiah, Greek, Hebrew, translated King. King, king came down from the heights of power and splendor to the abyss of weakness and lowliness proper to a slave. From the highest height to the lowest place. And herein revealed for the apostle and for all of us the inner nature of the Redeemer is both above history and yet also in history. Paul writes this in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind. Think this way. Let this percolate in your brain. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, acknowledge that Jesus Christ, Jesus King, is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
before Jesus is exalted, Jesus has to experience humility. What, what Paul is expressing to us in this ancient psalm is that Jesus existed before the birth in Bethlehem. Now that should throw our circuits. I mean, logically, the way our brains work, the way that we're locked in the time and space, that shouldn't make any sense. And I can't explain it, so please don't ask me. All I can do is really believe that Jesus, in some way, he existed before his birth in Bethlehem. And that if there would have been some kind of elevator, rocket ship, I don't know, some way to translate us from planet Earth into the heavenlies, to the the third heaven, wherever God is, that if we could have gone there, if we could go there now, we would see that there are these, why we would, I don't know if we'd even be able to describe them, but we'd be able to say, that's God. And what Paul is trying to express to us is that before Jesus existed on the earth, he existed with the Father, and if we would have shown up, we would have said, he's God. So the appearance of God the Father, God the Creator, Almighty God, God the Holy Spirit, God, we, we, would, we would not be able to say, well, anything other than that's, that's God. This is God. This is deity. And somewhere, in some fashion, God, the Creator, had some kind of conversation. And that conversation was something like, you know, my creation is wrecked. What I had in mind has been thwarted. And it's been thwarted by a rebellion. And part of that rebellion is because of those angels that rebelled. You know, that guy, that one, that evil one, Satan, he's still got this band of evil. I mean, they're, they're bad, but they've really deceived creation to rebel against me. My creation has rebelled against me. Man, I have tried through the centuries. I've, I've created this nation. I tried to showcase what it would look like if God was on the earth again and there was a, there was a nation that wasn't in rebellion again. Well, they rebelled against me. So I, I got I to play the trump card here. Jesus, I need you to divest yourself of everything that you have as God and humble yourself and become a man. Because I don't think the rebellion is going to end until God enters that rebellion and actually suffers the consequences of that rebellion. Jesus laid aside his divine privileges. Jesus laid aside his equality with God. And he he became a man. He became a baby. And he entered humanity at the lower end. The shepherds were outcasts. That was their stature. Have you ever thought about Joseph taking his family back to Bethlehem, his hometown, to be registered in the census? Have you ever thought about in the, if you go to the Middle East, the ethic of hospitality, 
Joseph would have had relatives in Bethlehem. Why is there no place for Joseph in Bethlehem? Because he's coming home with a pregnant girl. And his family says, you're, gonna, you're not going to shame us by coming to our house. Go stay in the inn. There's no room in the inn for two reasons. Either the census really brought a lot of people into Bethlehem, which is a small city at that time, or the inn was owned by his uncle. You're not staying here, Joseph. You got a pregnant girl. You're not bringing that shame into my inn. So you go out with the shepherds. Because they'll take you. Because they're absolutely the lowest rung on the ladder. You can be born amongst all of the fowl in a cave. To go from God to baby? It's a tremendous humiliation. I, I can't comprehend it. But he, hum, he, he chose to humble himself, to enter humanity at that place. And then he chose to live this life of being obedient. Again and again and again. And that obedience led to rejection after rejection after rejection. It showcased, it demonstrated what it looks like for God to intervene, for God to heal, for God to set captives free, for God to miraculously provide. But still, ultimately, the people that had the longest history with God rejected God. Even when God made himself, he made his entrance really easy, he was rejected. And his obedience led him to the cross. And again, there's a stigma. Capital punishment on a cross carried with it a stigma of, you're a criminal. You're a low-caste criminal. So in so many ways, the entrance and the exit of Jesus, Jesus touched the lowest level of humanity so that his grace, his mercy, his salvation could trickle up, trickle up salvation from the lowest to the highest. And because Jesus was willing to humble himself, Paul says, therefore. God has exalted him. And God has given to him the name, the name that is above every other name. And in that exaltation, it really, that's that when Jesus returns, he'll be in that exalted and we'll see him in all of his glory and fullness and righteousness and the so what is that we get to be a community now and our knees bent I mean I'm talking literally I'm not talking figuratively we are a community that falls on our knees so be it falls on our face and we say, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the exalted one. That you are our king and our God. And that with our mouth, that this community 
we acknowledge Jesus is king. Jesus is the name above every other name. We, we worship and praise him with that name. And then he says that he really begins this with just this incredible statement. We as a community of the king who bow our knees to the king, who with our tongues acknowledge him as the king, we have the same thoughts among us that we have in communion with him. The way what Paul is saying is we have been brought into this divine fellowship with our king. It's an incredible statement. You wonder, you wonder what makes our fellowship genuine? It's that our communion with Jesus is, is among us. It, it's ultimately Jesus that gives our community its uniqueness and its life and its longevity. Just go on and on and on. So this Advent season, I'm inviting us to just allow our King in our communion with Him to connect us with one another in His community. Not my community, not your community, it's His community. And as a community of people, that we bend our knees and that with our mouth we confess, we acknowledge there is but one king. There is but one hope. There is but one who can bring peace. There's one savior. There's one Lord. That's it. There's, it's it. It's Jesus. So in our response, for those of us that can, I'm noticing around the room we have some that are pregnant. We have some that are, you know, have a cane. You know, there are t- God makes exceptions. But for all of us that can, may we take a moment and just literally get on our knees as a community? Not just in word, but in heart. Jesus, you humbled yourself so that we, like you, could take a moment in community and that we could get on our knees in a posture of humility. Jesus, on our knees, we worship you. As those travelers from the east who came and appeared in Bethlehem with gifts for a king, they lay prostrate Gentiles coming from the east laid prostrate on the ground in acknowledgement that you were king. And there is no king greater than you. There is no authority higher than you. There is no one worthy of the praise that we would give to you, the worship that we offer. And Lord, as a community, we acknowledge not just that we bend before you, but, oh Lord, with our mouths, we acknowledge you are the king.
You're the King of all kings. You're the Lord of all lords. There is no name higher than your name. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would now deepen our connection with you, deepen our connection with one another, that we would have this mind in us that is also in you. Lord, I pray that you would send us out to be humble people following in your footsteps, people who serve the lost, the least, the lonely, people who represent your kingdom, who announce your kingdom in deed and word. And, oh, Lord, as we face humiliation, as we face rejection, Lord, let us know that the day will come that we too, like Jesus, will be lifted up. Thank you, Jesus, for entering our world so that we could enter yours. We bless you and praise you in your name.